donuts and and uh, we'll begin. Is that that's the secret, right? Okay. All right, uh, dear Father, we uh, just are grateful to be able to gather here today, Lord, in this place with this group, Lord, and with Your Word before us. And I pray that it would draw us, Lord, to a, a closer understanding of You, that it would excite our hearts, and that we would. Uh, just come to know you better in the process. Please uh, l- let the Holy Spirit lead us this morning. Give me clarity of thought and purity of intentions. In Jesus Christ, amen. Okay. So we, we got a little, we got the in- introduction last week and a, just a little bit into chapter one. And, and so we're going to pick it up there uh, today. I mentioned that in writing this letter, Paul had received... Very encouraging uh, news from Timothy, who had sent out to follow up with the Thessalonican church, with the Thessalonians, and he'd gotten great words back uh, that, were, that was really lifted him up, and I think it affected the way this letter comes across, and it's, it's a great letter. It's really uh, inspirational, I think, for believers, especially new believers and mature believers and, and all, just to see that the reality of salvation can express itself so well. So Paul has this assurance about these believers uh, that they had been truly saved. And I think that it was based on uh, three main things of which Timothy had reported to him. One of them was um, the way uh, that the gospel came to them. And then also the way that they received uh, what Paul had brought, and then how it expressed their lives, how they lived it out, uh, how it showed up, which would be, we would call their sanctification. So we're going to look at that as we pick it up in chapter 1 of First Thess- Thessalonians. And uh, I'll, I'll start reading at verse 4 again and uh, go to uh, through verse 5 to get started then. He says, uh, Knowing, brethren... Beloved by God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So that it didn't just come in words. It came in words, but not just words, right? It came, He speaks of the power, and He associates it with the Holy Spirit. You know, we looked at a little bit of that last week. We, we looked at this uh, election issue, this being chosen issue, and uh, we saw what the convicting work of the Holy Spirit was. And uh, when he says how it came to him, he adds a little uh, vignette at the end, and he says, uh, it came uh, to you in, with full conviction, and that means uh, with full assurance or in full measure. I mean, they get, they get the whole enchilada when, when he brought the message in. He's trying to tell them nothing was withheld, and this was a powerful delivery of the gospel, what God desires. So he talks about, I thought we'd focus just a second on what about the Holy Spirit and his function or his job around the gospel, around the, the, the delivery of God's truth, uh, both before and and during and then afterward, the Holy Spirit, how does He function? You know, Jesus 
emphasized that it was expedient when he was speaking to the disciples that he leave so that the Holy Spirit could, could come and he gave some specific works that the Holy Spirit would do. Can, can you think of some of those? We looked last week at conviction. The convict, he convicts the whole world, not just those who would believe. He convicts the whole world of uh, sin and righteousness and judgment, right? So that conviction is, in some sense, it's convincing. He doesn't convince the whole world to receive the Lord as Savior, but he does convict everyone. So that's, that would be before the gospel is actually presented or at the time of the gospel being presented itself. He kind of goes before and prepares hearts, I think, among rational men and women and uh, gives us a fair shot at receiving or rejecting the gospel. What's, what's some other power, some other work of the Holy Spirit that came about after Christ uh, suffered and uh, was resurrected? He seals us. In Ephesians 1.14, it says that we are sealed with him once we believe, and it's kind of like, I always thought of it as like an engagement ring. It's kind of like until you're fully glorified, you know, when he comes to get us or at our death, that we're sealed, we're his. And uh, we don't need to worry uh, that we're not his because he tells us the Holy Spirit is our evidence of that and he indwells us. He bears witness with us, right? And uh, in Romans it says he does so much. Sometimes we can't, we don't know what to pray, right? And uh, we can be deeply in prayer and then we just don't have words, and yet the Holy Spirit, it says in Romans, kind of functions and groaning, and he's, he's making contact for us at the level that we need him to when we don't even know what to say because he indwells us. How about, uh, I've got a good scripture for us. Uh, well, let's talk about John first, uh, John 3. Remember uh, Jesus uh, talking to Nicodemus, the educated uh, religious person of the day who knew everything about Judaism that he, uh, that he could. And, and yet, what did Jesus tell him in their conversation, their secret conversation at night? Let's turn there. Let's go to John 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8. And speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see this, the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It seems that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is involved with our rebirth. I think another good um, scripture to look at, turn to Titus. Turn to the book of Titus. And uh, let's look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. It 
It says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we see the Holy Spirit there involved with the washing of regeneration and renewing that goes on. And I see that that word regeneration is really synonymous with being born again. There's some special work that the Holy Spirit does in His capacity uh, ever since Christ died and rose that, that functions in when, when conversion takes place that that new birth is automatically also uh, put into effect. And we're connected with God in eternal, eternal life. You know, we're baptized into the body. And I think also the additional word there, and renewing by the Holy Spirit also, tends to speak of not just the conversion event, but also <clears throat> what goes on after conversion as we live, as we try to live and uh, become conformed to the image of Christ, which we would call sanctification. Do you have something, Porter? <clears throat> Right. So after the, the spiritual rebirth, there's an ongoing uh, involvement of the Holy Spirit. It helps us mature. And we would call that sanctification, I think. So we have him before, you know, a decision is made, before conversion, at the time of conversion, and then ongoing in our lives and sanctification. What do you have, Sue? So Sue's saying that uh, <clears throat> the apostles themselves, Paul and Silas and Timothy, their own lives that they were living, they came, the, the gospel came to them in authenticity, and it was expressed by people who were authentic in the process, which draws people, I believe, to the gospel. You know, Paul is never uh, timid about saying, be an imitator of me because he's an imitator of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. I don't think I can say that. I couldn't say that. I mean, I could say it, but it wouldn't be true. And, uh, but it's true of Paul, and it's true of Silas and these. He's, he has the, we'll get into it in a little bit, but he has the boldness to, to put himself forth, live like this. He's not ashamed, and he has an integrity. And this, I think, drew people, drew the Thessalonians also to the gospel. Okay, so uh, good. So we got the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think one more, another place uh, where uh, the function of the Holy Spirit in the sanctification process, we're going to look at that a little closer here in a minute as we get into the uh, further in the chapter, but Romans 8, the whole chapter of Romans 8, 
holds up that our life is of the Spirit. We're not of the law anymore. We're, we're to live in the Spirit. And we're going to look at what that should produce as we go further. Now, so that's how the gospel came to them. How about how they received the gospel? Let's turn back again to the text in verses uh, 6 through 7. It says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let me stop there. So he, he does... Uh, they received it, and that as they received it, they, were, they became imitators of Paul and Silas, as I just said, who were authentic in their uh, uh, trust and, and, uh, and giving of the truth of God. Now, these next two express something special about these people. Uh, it says that they received it, this word, this gospel, in much tribulation, much persecution, and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So we have tribulation, we have persecution, affliction, and we have joy. And that's a pretty unusual combination, wouldn't you think? Um, so I would like to look at that. Um, for the natural person, the unsaved person, those two just really don't go together very well, a persecution or affliction and joy. Yes. Oh, very good. Very good. Very, very good. What she said, and that conviction, that full measure that it came with, was convicting to them. Not everyone who is convicted, as I said, the Holy Spirit convicts the whole world, and not all believe. But for those that believe, it's a true conversion. And uh, you talked about the external, the internal, true. The, the uh, affliction, they were suffering externally. But joy, when we think of joy, many times we're talking about an emotion. But what you're talking about is more a possession that they have as believers. I would totally agree with that. Now, let me just ask you for kicks. What the, for the natural person, what is the opposite of joy? What, Porter? Sorrow. Sorrow. Excellent. What else? Despair. What, Sue? Unhappiness. All these things that are, that are based on our circumstance, right? Despair. Anxiety. Desperation. Depression. All these are the opposite of a natural understanding of joy, but we're talking about the joy of the Holy Spirit. Where have we heard that combination before 
joy from the Holy Spirit. Can you think anything come to your mind at all? What's oh, perfect? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit. It's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit uh, is makes and we bear as believers. We bear it, right? Let's turn to Galatians five twenty-two. Since I do have it marked. Okay, let me pick it up in 22. So it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay, now these are, this fruit, singular, is expressed in all these ways, but it's expressed, we don't, I mean, it's not the Holy Spirit that it is him express, expressing them, but it's through the believer, right? It's, it shows up in the believer. So it's a fruit that's attached to the believer, right? When did Jesus speak of fruit being attached to believers? John 15. Okay, let's turn there. John 15. It looks like you're going to think I asked uh, Jeff to set me up today, but it just so happens that we're on this, you know, great minds, I guess. So we have John 15. I'm just going to read uh, the, first, the first five verses. John 15. This is the vine and the fruit, okay, uh, and the branches. Okay, Jesus talking to the disciples. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so that neither you, excuse me, so that neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay. So he's telling us, What's required for us to bear the fruit with regard to the vine? What must we do? Abide. We must stay connected. We must be the branch. And the life flows through the branch. And in the case of the fruit, the Holy Spirit is that life that's, bearing, that's giving the fruit that we believers bear. This, all of this is talking about sanctification. It's talking about your life uh, once you've uh, come to the Lord, trusted Him as, as your personal Savior. And Paul has just said he saw this in the Thessalonians. Okay? It, it is, it's slam dunk. These people are saved. That's what Paul is telling you. I'm convinced. No question about it. You're saved because you have the fruit, you have the joy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and this joy, and I think it's... Uh, what Linnell was talking about also is based on it's a freedom from guilt. We're justified. These are things that have been given to us at, uh, because we've trusted God. Sonship of the Father, eternal life, and on and on. So let me ask this to differentiate these two joys, that of the world and that of the Holy Spirit. What's the opposite of the joy of the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to tell you, it's sin, not sorrow, it's sin. That's what separates us from the believer. 
we don't have the joy of the Holy Spirit, we're still in our sins. All these things are made uh, possible, our circumstances notwithstanding, because we've trusted in God as our Savior. So it's more than an emotion, it is, it is a possession. I think that uh, I want to show you uh, in Psalm 51, uh, I, I believe that David had grasped this, this, this lack of the Holy Spirit joy when he wrote this. Now remember, I'll, I'll set the stage for you. Uh, David, King David had sinned with Bathsheba adulterously and uh, in the process her husband had been, you know, uh, killed and uh, on purpose and uh, David had taken her to, as his wife and of course they had the child and he's just kind of going along, you know, and uh, for if you just saw him you wouldn't really know what was if he was in turmoil or not but then uh, Nathan the prophet comes to David with a story about a, about a little sheep somebody's uh, sheep is taken in lieu of someone else's and it really upsets David so let's turn to Psalm 51 I'm just going to read four verses um, three and four and see if this isn't what I'm talking about here with what the, the loss of the joy of the Holy Spirit is. Now, he didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling him at the time, but he had a relationship with God. So listen. It says, uh, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now let's turn over to uh, 11 and 12. It says, this is David speaking to God. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And I think that captures what it would be to lose this, this joy of the Holy Spirit of which Paul is speaking. Any, uh, any ideas, pa uh, Porter? Well, I'm just going to I really like verse 17. Go ahead and read it. Very good. That's what God wants, a broken, contrite heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, because, you know, when it's when we get all of our stuff out of the way that we're available to really be honest and receive the truth of God. Jeff? We have a big problem, and it's sin, and we have a reluctance today to hear about it, from, to be told about it, and that's, that's a huge thing, and it's, we're going to get into that in a minute when, when Paul talks about his ministry also. Uh, so sin, okay, sin is the opposite of the, uh, of the joy of the Holy Spirit. So he's energized in his forgiveness to go to, to give to talk about the God who saved him. And again, it's because we sin 
there's something to talk about. Right. There's something to preach, you know. Yeah. What do you? Because it could lack the consistency, you know, and I think that that's like with, I know in my walk with Christ, whenever it's, I try to do something for God, you know, or whatever mm-hmm. that could be, I know that it's because there is a lack of consistency, a lack of consistency of surrendering to Him and prayer and devotion, yeah. and just sense, sense closer to Him, purity of devotion to Him. And I just think that word sustained is like really, whenever we said that again, I was like, yeah. But it is to sustain a willing spirit because when you think about it, it's like flesh and flesh and spirit. I mean, they're in battle with one another. Right. And I mean, that's where because like the you know the, the one that the flesh is weak. Yeah. Right. Romans. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Romans eight. Exactly. And so I just think that that's I just love the consistency of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that when I'm not, He is. You know. Yeah. So you're, you're attaching with that word sustain, not you doing it, but God doing it. Right. And you get this picture of Moses, you know, standing up there, and the word is established that they use. But they, you know, as long as the arms are up, they were winning the battle. And when he went down, he got so tired he couldn't hold it up. He was 80 years old. Come on. And, but the guys who got Aaron and somebody got on his sides, and they held his arms up. And he was sustained during that process or established. Yeah, and it's about... It's about that walk, and I, you know, that's the most complicated thing in the world is to get out of the way and let God work in you. How do you do that? But you've talked about being in prayer, being in contact with Him, being open and yielding. The simplest, most complicated thing you can ever do. That's true. <laughs> Jeff says the simplest, most complicated thing you can do. Right. But I, I, have, I always, when I read things like this, I think back to in the 80s when the guy sang songs and they were usually tongue in cheek. So he had this song, I Want to Be a Clone. Yeah, Steve Taylor. And so, you know, it's a song about I, I've become a Christian, now I'm going to go to this church and I, I just have to act like everybody else. You know, and that's oftentimes what we, what we, we don't say it. But we kind of project that on people. True. Just be like me, and you know, and if I'm if I'm walking with Christ, that's great. But it comes down to that humility. If I've been if I've been truly humble, I think that's what you know. Paul's like. He's. If you read his stuff, he's been humble. <laughs> you know, to be able to walk with Christ. And he has. Anyway. He has. Yes, we must be careful. Uh, there's plenty of people that want to be imitated, and it's easy us. It's easy. We're lemmings. Believe it. Uh, we, you know, we'll we'll we can copy things. I go. We went to what England. And I came back with an English accent. You know, it's like, come on, wake up, slap up, you're a southern boy. Yes, sir. Yeah, right. Paul is not immune, but he has worked through this. He, 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 he talks about affliction, believe me, we'll go over it in a second. He's not just uh, 
some esoteric you know, uh, uh, talk about it. He, he's experienced this painfully. And that's why he, he, he can credibly identify with Christ. When he says, imitate me, he didn't say, it's fun, imitate me. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so very good. All right. So the capstone, let's read verse 7. Great. We might even finish the chapter. I wouldn't bet on it, though. Uh, so, speaking again to the Thessalonians, so that you, the Thessalonians, became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That, that would be all of Greece at that time. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone, gone so that we have no need to say anything for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. I'll stop there at that point. So they have a testimony. They are walking in sanctification. They are sounding forth the word. What is that? They're evangelizing. They're in, under affliction. I mean, they're the real thing. It's real. And I think Paul is impressed with it, and, and he's glad. He's joyful. They, they are a joy to him. Uh, and there's something if we want to imitate um, their testimony. So that's kind of the capstone. Paul's, it's like Paul saying we couldn't even boast about you when we went out because people were already telling us what we did there. Isn't that something? I mean, I'm sure he was, I'm sure his heart was really warmed with that. Okay, so let's proceed into verse, any more comments there? We can proceed into verse 9. Um, through verse 9. It says, okay, what they reported. Then it says, they also reported this, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. I'll stop there. Turn to God from idols. Okay. What do you think about the order of events there? The Thessalonians, remember they were primarily pagans. There were some Jewish people. And all, but they were probably made, primarily made up of Greeks and Romans, pagans, out of the pagan religion, and they turned to God from idols. So did they clean themselves up first and get their act straight and then say, okay, now we're ready to go to God? They didn't reform themselves. They came to God, and the rest took care of itself in this case. Now, they're, you know, sometimes, so we would, we would call that, they, did, they, did they come in faith first and then repent? essentially, of, what, of their deeds. And sometimes it's like you read in the scriptures, well, it's repent and then believe. Well, we're seeing a little different order here. You know, there's a... I don't, has anyone here ever heard of Ray Comfort and Living Waters Ministries? Ray Comfort. I love to, I love to watch his little segments. This little guy, he's a New Zealander. He's a, he's a Jew. He was, you know, he's a national Jew, but he's a Christian. And he goes about, he lives in Santa Monica or somewhere along the uh, California coast, and he rides around, and he, and he gets on a soapbox, and he deals, he, he believes that a person needs to have their sin before them first, and, uh, you know, uh, and then turn to Christ that way. So he, he's a strong believer in that you need to repent first, and he'll, uh, he uses the Ten Commandments, and he usually takes them through about the first four commandments, and everybody's broken them, and he shows them before the law that they're sinners, and he, and he, even makes them say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm based on what, what, what I've done, I'm going to hell. 
he can even have him say that. And then he says, well, you think about this, you know. And he, I think he's got a great ministry. Kirk Cameron's a, a guy that works with him, too. And, and uh, I'm, I'm impressed with him. Uh, but I, that's not the way, that's not the order of things I'm reading right here. Now, J. Vernon McGee, he used to always talk about this repentance and faith thing as being like the two sides of a hand. You know, you've got faith on one side and repentance. And, it, and, and that's, repent actually does mean to turn, to turn around. And so when you turn to Christ in faith, you've turned away from your sin or everything that was your need uh, for a Savior. And uh, so I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't think God has a method uh, where he checks off a box, one, two, three. I didn't do it right. But, you know. That's good. Sir? That's a good answer. Good. So we have it both ways, I think. We tend to have our boxes. We, tend we to, do. We tend to have our order. But, uh, well, I mean, as soon as I, as soon as I heard Ray Comfort, I went back and said, Lord, I repent of all the... Yeah. You know, <laughs> I want to get this right. No mistakes. <laughs> Yeah. They, they turned to God and then saw how fruitless a dead, non-living idol is. So in the same way, we should, we should do the same thing. Turn to God and mm-hmm. Did you catch that not-so-subtle uh, reference to the living and true God versus the dead and wooden, lifeless idols that you had? And so it's kind of a, he gives a comparison by contrast in there as well. Jesus is real. What you have is fake. So let's finish. And it says, and to wait, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he, the father, raised from the dead. That's his resurrection. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come and to wait. So what are we talking about? Remember I told you that each of these chapters in First Thessalonians is going to have some reference to the coming of Christ. Okay? And this is where we have it here in this one, this last verse. And to wait. So what is to wait? What do you wait, wait for? If you're waiting for something, you expect it to have, happen and you you hope it's going to happen, right? And I think this... Sir? The rapture. We need to talk about that. Probably not enough, not with four minutes left. But we will. We'll look at that. So I think it's referring in the broadest sense to the hope. Remember one of the terms he, he gave in the very first couple of verses was an endurance or a steadfastness of hope that these people had in Thessalonica. They had uh, an object of hope that was beyond repute that's totally trustworthy maybe anticipate anticipate has that added uh, dimension of being excitement yeah with a good feeling like we anticipate you know Christmas and Thanksgiving and all those things yeah I agree and it keeps them and he doesn't he he didn't say uh, wait for his coming as soon as the temple is destroyed or as soon as, you know, uh, the crusades occur, or as soon as, he didn't put any prerequisites on this, right? He told them to wait. And the word actually is in the aorist uh, tense, which means it can happen, it's in a moment by moment, any, any point it can happen. So one of the words, too, that comes to my mind for 
Oh, okay. A servant. Right. So wait doesn't just mean hang out. Oh, okay. <laughs> to serve. To wait, watch, and work. Some have said. I think there's also the sense of, of not working out our salvation by ourselves, waiting on him to create the sanctification and weaning on him. But it's much easier to take action. I know, but it's a learning process. As, we, as he pointed out about yielding and submission. And it's not, it should be so easy, but it's complicated, as Jeff says. So I don't know. So if, uh, I was going to, so that we, we're talking about the blessed hope here. Titus 2.13 is where we could find that. I think you might want to look that one up. I'm not going to stop because I would like to get a little further. So we're talking about, um, the coming of Christ. They're told to wait for the coming of Christ. So just as a little kind of a general survey, I was wondering what you guys think of when you hear this phrase, waiting for the sun from heaven or uh, the coming of the Lord or the second coming of Christ. What do you, what do you think? What, what comes to your mind? I'm thinking uh, not, not how do you feel, but uh, what, is, what does that term refer to? What does the second coming of Christ mean to you? And the rapture is what? Okay. Where we're snatched away. Harpazo. Uh, so it's the removal of the church. What about Christ coming to set up his kingdom? Okay. But it's the second coming also, right? What about, uh, what about our being in the presence of of the Lord when we receive rewards. That's a coming. It's referred to in some passages as a coming. You know, Peter even refers to it at the end of, uh, I don't know if it's first or second Peter, Jeff taught it, I forgot, but about uh, those who say God is, uh, they say he's not going to fulfill what he said he's going to do and come, and, and, that's, and they're, they're going to be shocked because the whole world will be destroyed with fervent heat. That's a different component of that issue too. And I think we're going to look at this later. I don't want to get it too much into it. I think right now they're referring to exactly what Porter said, the rapture of the church. But we're going to go through some areas where that's not doesn't appear what they're referring to. So I'm going to spend a little time later on talking about the second coming of Christ and see if it's a single event or maybe a period of, of time. Okay? So I'll stop with that. Uh, what about... On the, in the same vein, what about um, rescues us from the wrath to come? Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. What do you think of with that? The tribulation period? Those, that last uh, seven years of Daniel? The last the 70th, 70th week of Daniel? The tribulation? What else? Eternal separation. How, how about the, you know, God has saved us for eternity. And that's, you know, that's, that's wrath. A great white throne is a judgment. Wrath and judgment sometimes are viewed the same. Uh, that's it. That's right. We store it up until the day of wrath, unless we trust in the Lord. So the removal of our judgment, which did occur, it did happen at the cross. We just weren't physically there. Yay. Uh, Okay, so good. 
you know what, that got us to the end of chapter one. And uh, let me just point up a couple of things associated with this wait phrase here uh, in general, that they were told to expect, and it was at an any, any moment kind of expectation, and that there was no prerequisite of, of full, fulfilled prophecy. He just told them to wait, you know, just simply. Also, it's interesting that in such a brief time that Paul had with him, he chose to teach on topics like this. We've looked at some pretty good topics already. Uh, and I already said that it probably had a lot to do with their steadfastness of hope. But in the first 10 verses, we've looked at things like election, salvation, sanctification, resurrection, uh, coming of Christ, and wrath to come already, first chapter. So uh, this book is just, I love it. And uh, it's, it's just chock full. So uh, we'll stop here today and pick it up next week. And we'll, we'll start in chapter 2. So, Jeff, would you close us, please, in prayer? Amen. Yeah.